Here at Lady Farmer, we talk about so many different aspects of slow and sustainable living, a subject matter that can at times feel confusing, overwhelming, even misleading. And that's why a few years ago, we set out to write a book that might be a guide for those seeking a life of beauty, simplicity, and sustainability. We're thrilled to be able to offer you our own small guide for cultivating slow living, sustainable simplicity close to home available in our online marketplace. In the book, you've woven an easy-to-digest narrative of stories, recipes, tips, resources, ideas, and reflection. This collection of essays and resources will guide you to think about your own relationship to the planet, what you eat, what you wear, and how you live a sustainable lifestyle. It also contains a 21-day slow-living challenge of daily thought exercises to lead you in the process. For you Good Dirt listeners, we are offering free shipping of this wonderful little book with the code THEGOODDIRT in our online marketplace. So use the code THEGOODDIRT, T-H-E-G-O-O-D-D-I-R-T at checkout when you go to purchase your copy of The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living in our online marketplace for free shipping. That's The Good Dirt at The Lady Farmer online marketplace for free shipping on The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living. We hope you enjoy it. Thanks, everybody. Understand who made your clothes and how important it's just like understand where your food comes from. Understand where your clothes come from. I always said, under, you know, people care about the food, care about the clothes and um, just yeah. start that journey. And I think ultimately you'll make the world a better place. You're listening to the Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty-gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer, a slow-living apparel and lifestyle brand. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having constantly in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. Come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Hello, Emma. Happy New Year. What do you remember um, from a kid about the first day back to school after the holiday? Oh, gosh. That's not a happy memories. <laughs> I know. That's, that's what today, the Monday, it's Monday, June 4th, as we're recording this. So that would have been the day that you would have had to go back to school after Christmas yeah. break. And for a while, because I switched schools in the middle of high school. And the way they did it at my new school was you had your final exams after Christmas. Oh, that's awful. That was the worst. Yeah. So thank goodness you're all grown up now. <laughs> <laughs> thank goodness. Yeah. So I guess today a lot of a lot of kids are going back to homeschool. Yeah. Whatever that looks like. Yeah. And also it's just that weird kind of like New Year's slow start in a pandemic time. Yeah. So. Holidays over and pandemic is still here. Yeah. 
Well, I'm really excited about today's episode with Eric Henry from TS Designs. TS Designs began as a small manual screen printing operation in North Carolina back in the 70s. Uh, It grew super quickly and was printing shirts for big brands like Nike and Tommy and Polo. But after NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement in the early 90s, which we get into a bit more in the episode, um, TS Designs had to make a major pivot as it began losing most of its customer base. Um, So looking for a different way to do things, they turned to this triple bottom line business model, which focuses on people, planet, and profit. So today, TS Designs still sells largely to local, environmentally, and socially conscious businesses and organizations. Eric continues with a spirit of innovation, and they are now producing their own in-house line of apparel called Solid State Clothing which is really cool. And you'll hear all about that too in this episode. Yeah. What I think is really great about this episode, it gives a great overview of what has happened in the fashion industry from several decades ago before NAFTA, through NAFTA, after NAFTA, and up to the present. And Eric has been in business before, during, and after all of this, and through the pandemic, and as he says, through 9-11 and through the recession. So it's a really good look at what the fashion industry has been through and what we mean when we're talking about fast fashion and what we mean when we're talking about sustainable fashion, the principles and the mission of the kind of business that Eric runs. I just think it's interesting and it's informative and it'll. I think it'll help our listeners really understand what we've been talking about for the last four and a half years and what Lady Farmers started out in the interest of educating people about fast fashion. And we've certainly run into some of the issues that Eric speaks about in his company, certainly not on the same scale, because we don't do only production now. In fact, we do very little production. But this is a really good bird's eye view of the fashion industry today and um, how a company that's been around for 40-something years has navigated all these turbulent waters and where we are today and how we can move forward into a better world. And he's it. I mean, he's the real deal. People ask about... You know, how are things made now and how's a t-shirt made and domestic production and all this and he Yeah. Like he's doing it and he's in one of the one of the places in the country where this is still kind of alive and, and happening in North Carolina. So So we hope you enjoy this episode. We hope you learn a thing or two. Enjoy. I'm Eric Henry, President of TS Designs. TS Designs has has been around 42 years. I've been here about 40 years. I actually started a small t-shirt company while I was at NC State in 1978. Right about 1980, I met my uh, soon-to-be business partner, Tom Sineath, that also graduated from NC State. He's a couple years ahead of me. And we, I took my business, I started NC State and his business, and we merged it. We incorporated the TS Designs Incorporated. And again, that's 1980. And then we grew the business, what they call a large contract screen printer. So our clients were Tommy, Nike, Gap, Polo. Uh, we moved, grew very fast. 
uh, it was also in the very time where, um, you know, technology was really starting to come up. You know, we started business before the internet, before the cell phones, before fax machines. So all that was coming around. We were taking advantage of that technology, grew the business to 100 plus employees, had moved in this building here. It's about a 20,000 square foot building. And the banks loved us. The business was growing. And then January 1, 1994, NAFTA was ratified. And within two years, uh, pretty much all those brands left. We had to lay off pretty much 80 of those 100 employees. The business model that we had built was completely destroyed. And this was a big textile community. Yeah. So, um, you know, this was Burlington Industries uh, got started. Matter of fact, that's how I got to Burlington is my dad worked for Burlington Industries. Pre-NAFTA um, was one of the, if not the, one of the biggest textile companies in the world. Uh, they had facilities all over the world. You, you did, they didn't know them as a brand, but they made all the materials that went into the, the suits and the jackets and the upholstery fabrics and um, uh, linens and all that. Very, very large. And I never forget, it reminds me a couple of years prior to that, uh, my business partner I invited to a, a thing up in Greensboro, which is probably about oh, 20 miles west of here. And they had this big symposium on how NAFTA was going to really expand our marketplace. So they invited anybody, you know, in the textile. So my business partner, I got invited. At that time, the, the two biggest companies in the world were Burlington Industries and Guilford Mills. And this was a year or so before NAFTA. And I never forget making a, a, a comment to my business partner, Tom, out in the audience. And I don't know exactly what I said, but something to the fact that, you know, they were talking about, you know, at that time, pre-NAFTA, pretty much everything was made here. And so, um, you know, our clients were in the U.S., our competition was in the U.S., and we flourished very well in that market. As I said, we were one of three provider of printed, printed Nike t-shirts. Had a great relationship with Nike. And, and I always like to tell people, this is when Nike's apparel headquarters was in Charlotte, North Carolina, because... This is where all textiles were. So they, they were always, you know, home was in Beaverton, Oregon, but they had a big uh, apparel hub here in Charlotte. So anyway, we're in the audience and they were talking about how that when we open up these uh, borders between Canada and the U.S. and Mexico, you know, there's millions and more people that be customers. And I made the comment something like, you know, and again, remember, this is like, you know, um, early 90s or something like that. And um, I told my business partner, you know, that, that person in Mexico that's making maybe $10 a day is not going to buy an $18 Nike t-shirt. So we sold, that's what Nike was retailing t-shirts for. And sure enough, uh, you know, NAFTA becomes ratified. The brands move uh, quickly to Mexico and um, our business was destroyed. And I just came to realize there's got to be a more, more than a business in a bottom line. And, you know, my business partner wanted to stay in the industry we want to stay in the area, but pretty much there was no business anymore. Um, and most people in that time from chamber of commerce to uh, the academia says, you know, either you get an overseas partner or go out of business. So we decided not to do either and essentially rebuilt our company, what I call based on the triple bottom line of people, planet, profit. Hmm. And That's when you great. talk about a triple bottom line in the, um, mid to late 90s people had that glazed over look you know triple bottom line in business about the bottom line well you see what the bottom line has just gotten us 
just yeah. got us rid of that guy in the White House. Yeah. Um, yeah. But there's more to it. So um, that's been the path we've been on ever since. Uh, some people call it a sustainable business model. We were, went later to become the first uh, uh, B Corp, Benefit Corporation Certified Company in North Carolina, represents over 3,000 companies now in the world. And we just believe it's a way to operate a business. Uh, yes, profits are important. That's what keeps the lights on, pays the bills, keeps our employees in a living wage job with benefits. But it's not what we're our sole base of business. And then we couple that with, you know, we make, we grow, process, and manufacture apparel in this area. So we're focused on connecting that supply chain and what we've learned in the later years is doing it in a transparent supply chain. I am not saying there's a lot of room for improvement. I'm not saying that we don't make mistakes or don't things right, but there's no secrets to what we're going to do because as you and I both know, if you know anything about the apparel industry, it's a very opaque industry mm-hmm. and they don't want to tell you where it's made because as I did a TED talk a couple of years ago, 98% of the clothes we buy today are made overseas. Why is that? Because they make it cheaper over there than developing countries but they don't want to tell you that story in Bangladesh. They just want to lure you with a beautiful image or a beautiful model or you know, all this. But, you know, we we believe um, we are built on the supply chain that makes our product. And um, we'll get into the whole solid state thing in a second. But that's a, a random uh, snapshot of, I guess, who TS Designs is. I want to go back just a minute okay. for people listening that might have kind of a vague idea of what what NAFTA was but if you could sort of describe that a little bit and and how after it happened how you guys had to shift gears to even stay in the business because you're one of the few that even survived the thing so sure NAFTA stands for North American Free Trade Agreement prior to that there were um, very few international trade agreements for the apparel industry you know prior to NAFTA, when you got a T-shirt made in, say, India or Pakistan or Bangladesh, it was very poor quality. There were tremendous duties and tariffs. So they were available, but nobody really participated uh, in buying those. And I have no, I like to tell people, I have no problem with global competition. What I have a problem with is, is competing in a global marketplace based solely upon price. And that's what NAFTA did. You know, their, their thinking was, and it was a failed flaw thinking, is that if we, between Canada, U.S., and Mexico, three distinctly different countries in the way of developing, you would consider Mexico a developing country, and U.S. definitely farther down the path of industrialized. So by, by they took away all of the duties, and pretty much all the duties and tariffs between the companies, and essentially says, we'll let the marketplace decide winners or losers. And my argument during NAF times is, I was, you know, I have no problem with that, but we're not competing on a level playing field. You know, even things like environmental regulations are different here than they were in Mexico. Mm-hmm. So essentially, you are allowed to pollute there and not here. The same thing is how we treat employees. Mm-hmm. We were used different rules and regulation. I'm not saying they did anything that was illegal in Mexico, but the way they could treat employees in regards to hours worked, hours paid, hours paid full benefit, all these things were different. So one thing that the marketplace does when it looks at price, it doesn't measure negative external cost. 
So what NAFTA did is all these things that are environmental or people side or the, uh, the human resource side, they're pushed aside. And you as a consumer don't see that pollution that gets dumped out behind that facility in Mexico or those people that get sick and die by that pollution that gets dumped in Mexico. The marketplace does not recognize that. The marketplace has no conscience or soul. So what it does, is my product's cheaper. And in the society that we live in, you know, especially in a, in a capitalistic market, if I give you two products, one of $5 and one at $10, and that's all I tell you, of course you're going to buy the $5 one. And that's just human nature. And so from NAFTA, we have had numerous other trade agreements. Uh, one thing I fought against during Obama's term was the um, WTO agreement. And uh, based upon that same thing is a lack of transparency of who's making it, where it's come from, and what's the overall impact. Not just the $5, $10. I want to know what's behind that 5 and $10 from the standpoint of people impact and planet impact. It's, we are in a complicated business because, you know, if you don't have that background and we're a perfect example of that, you'll just think our t-shirts are expensive and um, you don't understand, you know, the impact as when we, we source it local and pay a living wage locally and keep our dollars local compared to bringing all overseas, which typically those deals, I like to say, benefits a few and hurts a lot. Yeah. And um, it's been a tough hill battle. I won't, you know, good gosh, you know, we went through NAFTA, we went through 9-11, we went through the, you know, uh, the recession of 2008, 2009, we've been through COVID. But again, I will continue going back. When you have a triple bottom line of people, planet, profit, you have a more stable base in which to work from. If you're just based upon, say, price, somebody will always do it cheaper. And, you know, but at the end of the day, you still got to make a great product that people want to support. In our case, people want to wear. So how how quickly after NAFTA, I mean, NAFTA was 26 years ago. Did I do that math right? Yeah, I think. Long time ago. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Probably so before your yeah. time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, was born, I was born in 91. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> um, how, like, did you did you have to change your whole business model? Like, what and how many like iterations? I'm I'm assuming that you've that it's changed a lot, but I don't know. Can you tell us? Yeah, about how that? did you get how people you, to buy from you at all? Yeah. They could get them cheaper. Well, the first thing was, you know, when <clears throat> when our you know our clients of Nike, Tommy, Gap, Polo, Adidas, all those within that two year period, they pulled out. They were definitely pulling out quicker than we were able to fill that business up. Sure. Yeah. So there was a period of time. I think it was 18 months that my business partner and I didn't even take a salary. Um, okay. I mean, we were losing so much money. And this was such a uh, apparel textile community. This, quote, asset that I'm sitting in at the time quickly became a liability because there was nobody to sell it to. Who's going to buy a 20,000 square foot facility in a industry or market? market that was devastated. It was extremely, extremely hard few years because we had built this, you know, a sizable business. Yeah. Um, not, you know, yes, we can had heartbroken to lay, lay off those 80 people, but we had all the equipment that went along with those 80 people that no longer was not being used. So it was a struggle. 
But that's, you know, I'd say, you know, we right out of the bat, we, we, you know, we realized we want to stay here and we realized, you know, you, you put all your heart, your effort, your time into a business that pretty much overnight goes away. And you said, wait a minute, there's gotta be something else here. There was a couple of people, Amory Lovins, Paul Hawkins, Ray Anderson. These are kind of the early leaders in this idea of triple bottom line. And so started reading, going out hearing these guys. And I had a good friend that owned a, at that time, a $50 million textile chemical company that was later taken out by NAFTA because they sold textile chemicals this community that went away. I give Sam Moore a lot of credit, the idea of introducing this, you know, because he saw we were struggling. But the, I will I'll say, you know, a lot of times life and, and business, a lot of luck. And we had one thing that we had luck going for us is those values of people, planet, profit were already a part of TS Designs. We just did not recognize them. Right. You didn't have to. Uh, it wasn't a necessity. Right. Before. I mean, you. I mean, I'll, for some reason, somewhere in my DNA life, I've always been a tree hugger. Right. Um, I've always cared about the planet. And when we moved to this location, and this is early 90s, we bought like almost five acres of property. If you look out the window, uh, turn the camera I mean, we essentially built a forest around us. And so, you know, we were doing recycling before recycling was even around. You know, we were doing all these things of energy conservation, but nobody really thought about ran a business that way. And then the other thing we just, perchance, both my business partner and myself always realized our employees are our most valuable asset. So since day one in business, we always, and again, back in the, you know, 80s and 90s, you didn't call it a living wage. We just never paid people minimum wage. Uh, we always help people with their benefits, either health care or 401k, because we just thought it was the right thing to do. You know, the, the Nikes that we had this, you know, uh, great relationship pre-NAFTA, you know, we could compete and still have those values because we didn't have to worry about competing about somebody's paying their people a dollar an hour. So we made up those additional expenses through hard work, efficiencies, developing systems. And so we're very competitive. But as the NAFTA kind of blew that out, we went back to this, you know, that, that triple bottom line. And so, um, but so the, one of the first things we did is we looked at our, we printed t-shirts. So what can we do to make our t-shirts not only more environmentally responsible, but also um, higher quality? So again, going back to Sam Moore, who had a background in textile chemistry, had developed this process that uh, resist dyes. And so we spent about two years to develop a process called Rehance. And to my knowledge, there's nobody in the world that does t-shirts this way. We actually take a white t-shirt, we print it, then garment dye. So all of our t-shirts start as white. We printed this, then we dye the whole thing blue, blue over here. Mm. So um, we developed this process and we did it for a couple of reasons. First of all, this process is a lot more environmentally friendly. Uh, it has a higher quality value. It prints in the fabric, not on the fabric. Does it crack? Does it peel? You can iron this. And the nice thing about it, we garment dye. So that means this shirt will never shrink. As I like to say, if this shirt doesn't fit six months from now, it's not the shirt's fault. <laughs> uh, the day. Uh, we used to contract that part out because we didn't garment dye. And then about, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, uh, there was a place across town that was uh, that would dye our t-shirts on second shift. They were they were basically in the sock business, so they knit socks and dye socks. So they dye our shirts on second shift. They announced they were going out of business. Uh, we looked around; there was essentially no other garment dyers in the South. So uh, we bought all the equipment, leased the space. It's probably about oh five miles from here. So we have the only garment dye facility in the South. 
So, uh, you know, it's these little things that we've picked up over the time. Mm -hmm. And then really what happened in this kind of, I got this shirt here about 12 years ago, I believe, is, you know, we developed this great process to to print T-shirt again about 20 years ago. But then I realized the shirts we're printing on more and more coming from overseas sources. I said, wait a minute, we grow great cotton here in North Carolina. I want to make cotton in the T-shirts. So we launched this brand called Cotton of Carolinas, and we partnered up with that farmer down there. It's a third generation, uh, Burleson and Son, and now work with the, the third generation, Andrew. Uh, Ronnie's still alive. Ronnie's in his 70s. And I went to them again probably 12, 13 years ago. I said, I want to buy some of your cotton. And i never forget when I asked when I asked Ronnie that, I want to buy some of your cotton. He said, why do you want to buy my cotton? Because you can buy all the T-shirts in the world by 1-800 or now just go on the computer and order them. And I said, I want to know where my cotton came from. And that's the, the flip side of a global marketplace is yeah. 80% of the cotton that's grown in the Carolinas, which is uh, North Carolina's typically the top three in the U.S., uh, leaves this country. Uh, it could leave this country, ultimately come back to a T-shirt, pair of socks in China. You don't know. You lose track of it. So I realized we're never going to grow it, gin it, spin it, knit it, finish it, cut and sew it. So what I want to do is I want to grab it at the source. So we buy the cotton. So then we take care of tomorrow when we do the 10,000 pound thing. We're talking to Wes who gins it. Then it'll go to to Andy at Spun Lab that'll spin it. Then it'll go to Jennifer at Contemporary to knit it. Then it'll go to Stacy to finish it. Then it'll go to Molly to cut and sew it. And then comes to TS Designs. We not only do, we have all those assets in our community, i.e. North and South Carolina, but the thing that kind of keeps us in balance and keeps us on track is we make that information transparent. You get this shirt here. We show you this, the supply chain that made that shirt by everybody I just mentioned. I, along, you know, this information is available. I give you a picture, a phone number, a physical address, an email. You can contact email our supply chain. And um, that's how I think apparel should be made. This has recently turned into, and it really got fast started with, with COVID. Now we call it solid state clothing. Cool. Yeah. Okay. So backing up just a little bit. I, um, sorry, I rambled on. No, that was great. Yeah. You covered a lot of ground there. So y'all now, your business is still just the garment dyeing and printing, but you connect the rest of the supply chain. Like, do you own I, any other parts of the, okay. What I, what I, no, we don't grow it, gin it, spin it, right. knit it, finish it. Cause what I like to say, we facilitate it. Okay. So what we do is uh, we facilitate it either by I.e. buying that cotton or by being a part of it, but we facilitate because, and that's the, for me the best way to leverage that. Cause I, you know, why do I want to own a cotton field when I've got the best people in the world growing the cotton? Right, right, right. So, um, and that kind of gets us into the whole 10,000 pound project. Yeah, we'll go for it. Like. Yeah. Yeah. I want it. We want, we want to hear all about that. Yeah. Ready to go for that? Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> well, and again, as I talked about, you know, our business has been through just tremendous change and we all know COVID hurt our business like everybody else. We, the first thing we did, it pivoted. We took a lot of these irregular t-shirts and made masks. Yes. So upcycle mask with our t-shirts. So we did that. So that has created uh, not only jobs and income for TS Designs. And then a couple of years ago, we had developed a brand called Solid State Clothing Company. And, you know, TS Designs is what they call business to business. I sell to NPR Radio or Dogfish Head Brewery. So we don't 
sell to the individual consumer. Well, you know, all these years we've been developing these relationships and also the internet has really come a long way where, you know, you can have that relationship with one-on-one with the customer. So we developed solid state clothing about two or three years ago. COVID hits. I realized even dogfish, we probably didn't hear from them for about six months. NPR radio, they've pretty much been, you know, dormant all this year. So we made a pivot to mask and then we made the pivot to bring solid state out, which was developed to be a business consumer brand. We want to take all the things we've learned over the years, tell that story direct consumer because we think we can tell it better and we can make it better than any brand out there. Because the challenge back step one said the, the challenge with brands today, they're built upon two things. Either it's an illusion of a lifestyle. You're going to buy a brand because such and such movie star wears it or this model wears it and you think yourself in that person or you're a brand that's trying to be in a big box store. So you're chasing price. So it's either on illusion or price with solid state. We want to create a brand built upon the people that make the product. Well, we have all the assets. We developed cotton of Carolinas, you know, 12 plus years ago. We know the players, we know how to do it. So, um, COVID got us to pivot. Uh, Amy, we brought Amy on part of uh, COVID. She was pretty much a friend for years, but we brought her on as director of communication for TS Designs and also part of the Solid State team. Courtney Lockmere uh, out of Durham, which is about 20 miles east of here, uh, brought her on as the brand manager. And so we we launched the brand, started making T-shirts, which that's you can order right now. But what I found out when I was kind of just checking back in with people that I know, you know, how's COVID impacting you? And I was talking to now Andrew, the third generation cotton farmer. And this was now probably April of last year. And um, what had happened the year prior to that, we had this trade war with China. So cotton prices were already suppressed. And um, he was getting ready to plant his cotton uh, in May. And in conversation, and again, you can go sound the internet too, is cotton trades for about 50 to 55 cents a pound. Andrew's costs are 75 cents. Well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this out. He's losing money for every seed he puts in the ground. Well, what this, what's happening and what we want to do is this is how commodity agriculture works. I don't care if it's cotton, wheat, soy, beef, chicken, whatever. The marketplace dictates the price. The farmer has no say so in the price. We want to change that. We think that's wrong because I don't make a product for you. And then when I get ready to deliver, you say, oh, well, we think we're going to pay you X for it. No, we agree upon a price. I've got to agree upon what I'm going to do. You agree on what you're going to do. That's how business is done. That's how a capitalist system wants. But what we've done with commodity agriculture, the marketplace. So literally, Andrew was putting seed in the ground at 50 cents. And it says cost 75 cents. So we came up with the idea of 10,000 pound project. And I don't, have you seen the video yet? I haven't yes, watched. I, I have. Yeah. You go see the video. Yes. Um, but what we, in that video, it's, it's timestamp may something. I look at my watch yeah. and I tell Andrew, I'm going to pay, you know, no, I don't say I'm going to pay you. That's the problem is 75 cents a pound, a good price for your cotton. And we make that agreement for that in May for cotton he just harvested about two or three weeks ago. So the 10,000 pounds will get utilized within solid state and TS designs. We The Cotton Carolina customers, our new solid state, that'll be fine. What, this, what we want this to be, and with help of people like you, is I want this to be a call to action 
for the brands to meet the farmer in the field before the seed goes in the ground. Because if we don't start taking care of these cotton farmers, they're going to go away. 40% of farm revenue last year came from subsidies. 40%. Yeah. Andrew was one of those people. Farmers don't want to work. They want to basically produce a product and get paid for a product. But when the marketplace dictates the price to them, they have no say-so. So we want to stop that. So we're hoping 10,000, and that's what Amy's doing. We're making a stop along the supply chain once a month. So, but we come January, you know, I want other brands to, to meet, uh, literally be in the field with us, with Andrew and says, this is what we'll pay you for your cotton. Mm -hmm. And then we're hoping to do two things is that in this hundred thousand pounds, we're going to bring more farmers from across the country, both conventional and organic, soon to be hemp, natural fibers produced in the U.S. All these contracts will be negotiated with the farmer before the seed goes in the ground. So, of course, organic, because you get less yield per acre, it'll be a higher price. I got that. So, and we'll do that transparently, just like I paid Andrew 75 cents with, oh gosh, there's name, uh, Kelly Pepper, I think is uh, Texas Organic Cooperative. We'll probably, you know, he'll probably want about a buck 40 for his cotton. But anyway, so we want to take all that cotton once, so the agreement's made in from, say, January to March. Seed goes ground in the ground April, May, harvested in the fall of 2021. This will not be yarn, fabric, or T-shirts until 2022. So the, the brands can follow this thing that we're doing this year on a bigger, bigger scale. But then, to me, it's a lot what they do in the wine industry. It's once you find a wine that you like and a vineyard that it comes from, you know, they're only going to make, you know, 50 cases, 100, that, what it is. If you want that, you commit to that pre, you know, harvesting or process. But every year that wine's going to be a little bit different because of the environment you're going in. So every year we're going to have this. This will be our, hopefully our only 10,000 pound year. And the next year will go up. I want 100,000 to 200,000 to a million pounds. So first of all, it is when you see that brand, then you know that the farmer had a say so in the price. And then each year that fabric will feel a little bit different. It's a natural fiber grown across the U.S. We're just really hoping to just, you know, there was a great article written right the early days of COVID called uh, Gaslighting. Yes, the, the I remember that one. Remember mm -hmm. it from Method Magazine? Yeah. Yes. And it says, we basically have two paths coming out of COVID. Yeah. One is the path of McDonald's and Walmart, which are going to be fine during COVID, which are going to be spend a bazillion dollars to get us a shot from them. And that other path is Main Street, which makes us unique and different. And if we do not invest in Main Street, or in this case, invest in this domestic supply chain, you know, we will lose, it will be worse the next global disruption we're going to have. So here's, a, we're, we're at a crossroads. We can go back to chasing cheap or the illusion of, you know, this fashion, or we can start building apparel supply chains built upon the people that grow and make the product. And what we want to do is we just want to be an example and show it can be done. And we are doing it and have been doing it. And just, we just need more, you know, we're a speck on the apparel spectrum, you know, but we want to be radical in the relationships and the transparency of how that's done. It's all about changing the consumer's concept of a good price. We talk about this a lot. You know, the mindset of the, of the consumer is you get something for cheap and it's a good price for me. Right. But this is turning in, it's on on its head. We need to develop supply chains and a marketplace where the, it's a good price for everybody all the way along the line. 
because the good price that's just good for the consumer is really not a good price and trying to educate people on, on why that is, why everyone is harmed when something is as cheap as it can possibly be in the planet, planet people and yeah. who's getting a profit, very few. <laughs> right. I mean, and we, you know, if you look at what's happened with COVID yeah. is the Jeff Bezos of Amazon, the rich have gotten richer. Mm -hmm. uh, the middle class has got crushed. And an economy and a society and a democracy cannot win if there's just a few winners. So we have got to change the playing field. And, and as I said earlier, I'll compete with anybody in the world. But you and we got to bring price to the table. We can't sell thousand dollar t-shirts. But, <laughs> but but you got to also bring. You know what? What's your impact of the planet? Impact of people. You know we need not only a better educated consumer, right. but we need systems. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I. Just perfect us is that, you know, and again, I'm not, I don't fault them, but the own community, which I've lived in for 60 years, and uh, when they needed masks and they reached out as one of the vendors, they went outside, I won't say outside this country, outside the state, but they basically had, to, they were forced by their, you know, to buy the cheaper mask. Mm -hmm. Right. And I live in this community, I pay tax in the community, I work in this community. Mm -hmm. So we've got so many systems that are based upon just price. Mm -hmm. and, we, and again, we got to talk about price, but that came, I mean, we got a, a, a university up the road at Elon University. And when I took freshman English there, they had um, 850 students. Now they got 6,000 students. And I know the president all the way down and I serve on Vibrant. Great organization. Can't say, but I've seen how they have grown into a big business. And what happens is the person that's making the decision to buy T-shirts looks at price and says you get to spend X number of dollars for these T-shirts. So of course we yeah. we get. Yeah. I tell them all every time the university grows, we do less business with you. Wow, that's that's the bad metrics of of, of large businesses. You know, um, you know they just they start. It gets complicated. So where they focus on is it's price, price. You know, what can I get? Mm -hmm. You know, the most stuff for the uh, least amount of money. Mm -hmm. And you know we've just got to develop better tools. And again, I'm not. I don't want to get the business because I believe in triple. Triple bottom line, soy upon that, but I want some mechanism to measure all those costs, yeah. and then let let's agree to maybe maybe is a better deal to get that product in China uh, once you bring it in the table. But we just don't have that discussion, much less have the metrics to measure that. Well, I think you know education is such a huge part of it because as you were describing, like right after NAFTA came along, or you know for years and years afterwards. Nobody, nobody was thinking about any of that stuff. And mm -hmm. you guys are unique in that. And then you're a company already thinking about that stuff. But nobody was. It was like, hey, this is great. You know, yeah. We can fill up all these big box stores for this stuff. And people can buy so many clothes. And now they're only spending like a fraction of the amount on their wardrobe that they used to before NAFTA. Because, you, you know, you bought quality things and you only bought a few things. And then that got flipped on his head. So, you know, we've been training a whole generation of consumers here. And it's it's time to you know turn it around um, for all these reasons uh, that we're talking about. Looking, talking to, to Amy and looking at your website, I mean, y'all understand the value of connecting to your local food. Yeah, that's an easier one too for people to get quick, quicker. Well, and again, once you do that, the value of that relationship, I mean, you know, uh, knowing where, you know, I like to say food just tastes better if you know where it came from. That's why my, my wife and I moved to a farm probably 10 years ago I'm very active in a running a small farm, vegetable based, 
that um you know that i sell back local community i mean that's that gives me my escape on the weekends and putting my hands in the soil but all the people you meet along the way and having the opportunity some of those vegetables go to saxball some of it go to a, a brewery that i helped start in, in burlington but you know it's, a, it's to me it's the, it's the the fulfillment of of life being connected to something beyond yourself and plus you understand how you know once you make clothes or once you grow plants you find how hard it is yeah and when yeah. you go see somebody that sells a t-shirt for five dollars or tomato for five cents you're going like wow i mean and most people just look at it as a price but now once you've done it yourself you're going like that's pretty hard to do but yeah. i mean it's it's the again it's to me it's all about the relationship that's why you yeah. know it's the supply chain that we have at ts designs and it's the the relationship i have in the farming community yeah um do but, you have any hope for the for the apparel industry or, or the population's understanding of the apparel industry being kind of like the way the the food system has gone like people just appreciating it more and thinking about their clothing the same way that they think about their food do you think that i mean that seems to be a trend but i don't well, i've grown more and more like cynical about it actually people well, especially actually since covid you know and yeah. people you realize that you know the five cent tomato is 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 not a given you know in the initial weeks of yeah. it people are wondering where is our food and i think there is a an elevation in the understanding of the value of local food there. But I think what Emma's asking you is, is do you see a parallel in an understanding of the, of the clothing industry being, being this pretty much the same thing? Uh, on one hand, while I'm, I'm hopeful that COVID will make people like yourself more aware and want to change or want to be more aware of where things come from. But I'm also concerned with COVID. That was the thing I was reading the other day or hearing you know, once you figure out the people that are really unemployed or looking for a job or whatever, I mean, it was, unemployment is like 26%. I mean, yeah. you know, there, there was another article. It's like 70 some percent of people couldn't handle a $250. I mean, it's amazing on one hand and having invested some money years ago where you see how well the stock market's doing, but then I see the struggles of some of my employees week to week, but I think there's more and more people that are struggling. And that's the thing I don't have the answer for is once you educate somebody yeah. and you have an opportunity to change, some people can't do that. Back to that five cent tomato. If you got people, if you got to eat tonight and you got people responsible, you're going you're gonna to go to Walmart and buy the most food you can for the buck. You don't give a shit where it comes from because you're just, you know, I, I got five cents and it's a tomato. I can't buy that. Uh, purple Cherokee heirloom tomato grown by Eric Henry and snow camp and pay, you know, $5 for, but what COVID done, there's a lot more of those people that are trying to feel where their next meal come from. So on one hand, that's going to hurt us because it's, it's going to drive those people. They, they've got to, they got to look for the cheapest price. That's all they care about. That was nothing. I don't know if Amy told you I actually ran for political office this last term. I saw that. I saw yeah. that. Good for you. <laughs> I was I was the blue dot in the red sea. Uh, but you're wearing a red shirt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and a red mask. It still didn't help me. I got my butt kicked. <laughs> it's um, okay. But just you know, know getting our community to understand, you know, yeah. you know, when you have that opportunity to knowing that. But if no, what my my plan is, if you don't have food on your table. If you're not going to pay your rent, if you don't have health care, you don't really give a damn about where your clothes yeah. are made. And so what my argument was, my overall statement is, is a community cannot be successful unless everyone has an opportunity to participate. It's yeah. not about you and I, it's everyone. And the way you do that, you pay people 
a living wage and not a minimum wage. You give people access to health care and you do these things and then they're able to contribute. I mean, my wife and I, we go, we do a church thing on Sunday. Don't, my main reason I go is I help feed people that probably the only meal they're going to get that day. I mean, uh, it's one little thing that I can do. And I, we are so fortunate, my wife and I. So anyway, what I was going to say is that those people are worried about where their next bill is going, but it's, it's the people that become aware that have the ability, mm-hmm. but they do not change. Yeah. You are now part of the problem. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, I'm not going to argue climate change anybody anymore. If you're going to make some reason that climate change is made up or God's way or what, that's fine. I don't have time to argue about it. I'm going to go over to these people that talk about how we're going to fix the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, those yeah. people that says, you know, we give those, we make shirts in Bangladesh to give those people a job. If you still believe that BS and keep knocking yourself out, but I'm not going to waste time. I'm going to go to those people again, like yourself that understand that there's more to it. And how do we build again, a community where everybody has an opportunity to participate. So, yeah, but I think COVID's a, it's, it's a mixed blessing. I think uh, why it's opened up a lot of eyes. I don't think we have seen, and I think we will see in the coming months, if we don't get some additional COVID stimulus, how bad it is out there for a lot of people in this country. Of course. Absolutely. And, you know, with all this comes to those that are, you know, willing to see it with privilege, the privilege of choosing which tomato you're going to buy comes responsibility. Yeah, it's almost like if you have the privilege to choose, it's almost like you don't even, you shouldn't, it shouldn't be too much of a choice. Exactly. I'll give everybody a break. I, you know, the story I give, I got into farming and I bought one of these John Deere rototillers and I got all excited about, man, look at this nice, rich, rich, rich <laughs> yeah. soil. Yeah. I didn't know about no-till. And yeah. then I was called a uh, soil genocide. I was killing oh. my soil. Yeah. And, like, yeah. and I didn't know anything about, and, and, and in two years now, I'm a no-till gardener. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh. But I didn't know that. But so, yeah. but, you know, if you give people that opportunity, you give them the facts, give them a chance to learn. Don't just say, you know, you need to stop doing that, but but, but become aware of it. Mm-hmm. And give them an opportunity. Don't beat them up because they didn't know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I just don't have time for those yeah. people where you just, you know, you get caught up in their, or, but again, there's always room to learn. And what I like to say is every day you make choices. The coffee that you drink, the phone that you use, uh, and all these choices have costs. And you understand that because you pay for it, you charge or whatever. But if you'll start asking the question, what is a social environment? and environmental impact that I'm making when I drink this coffee? Or what's this social environment impact when I buy this phone? And again, it's this phone's made in China. I depend on this phone here, but I also realize that people a few years ago were you know, jumping off buildings to commit suicide because of stress of making this. I end up at a Wendy's a couple blocks down the road here, maybe once, twice a month, because you know I'm in a in a hurry and I need something to eat. And if I don't eat, I'm going to have a headache and I'm not going to be functional. So but when I go in there, I know I'm not helping myself. I'm definitely not helping those employees. And I, I mean, don't beat yourself up right. for some of those decisions, but just be aware of what you're doing. Don't mindlessly go into, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, life. And I think once you start thinking that way, then ultimately you become more connected. Mm-hmm. And that's why you won't, you know, we, we eliminate styrofoam, which is still a legal viable product you can buy it's been out of this building we, we moved this building without styrofoam we decided a long time ago we're going to go coffee mug only drink all the coffee we want to then i learned about fair trade organic coffee that's our only fair trade organic coffee so it's i like to say sustainability is a journey not a destination yeah you know, you've got to continue to learn 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 and yeah. change as you learn 
Yeah, and it's like you say, it's like it's just a series of choices one by one, and uh, you really need to get judgment out of it, judgment of others and yourself. It goes back to it's it's about relationships. An example: yeah. we buy Gotts certified organic cotton. It comes from developing countries like India, I think, you know, is Bangladesh, one. India, wherever. Yeah. yeah, I'll never probably ever make it over there. Don't know the farmer. Don't know the Jenner. Uh, I just get this certificate. This is got certified. So I show right. it to my customer and they're happy. Oh, I got more. Right. To me, knowing the Burleson family, knowing Andrew and his kids and his wife and Ronnie and, and I mean, they're, they're, they're personal friends. Mm-hmm. And that relationship is so much deeper than uh, a certificate of price. Matter of fact, there's been some articles that Amy's been sharing with me and there's getting some pushback because there's all kinds of certifications yeah. Uh, in the apparel industry. The problem with a lot of certifications, it, it is that there's no relationship beyond that. Sometimes the transparency, you know, back to that gots, you know, time I get it, is it really organic cotton? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and don't even talk about the labor that grew it, but uh, I'll trade that. You know, I like to tell people, you know, that whole argument, local organic, local organic, I will always go local because local, you can establish a relationship with the person. And with a relationship, you can you can build, go somewhere. But if I'm just buying GOTS on a certificate, that's all it's going to be. And the next thing is, who's got the cheapest GOTS cotton? Yeah. That's where you're going to be. You're back to the price again. Yeah. And so there's a lot, seems to be a lot of pushback in the apparel industry. Have certi- certifications kind of run their course. And that's why we're, we're big on to this whole transparency. I mean, yes, that's GMO conventional cotton right there. But uh, I can take you and introduce you to a farm and a farmer and his family yeah. and all that. And I believe there's value in that. Yeah. There's a term called, I'm sure you've heard it, beyond organic. Yes. Where you yep. take all these things into consideration. And it's very, mm-hmm. very subjective. It's not a certification where boxes are checked off. And and the hard part about that that we found in kind of this this branch of what we're doing with Lady Farmer and this education branch, people, humans, we want we want things to be right and or wrong. We want to know. We want right. to check boxes. We want to know black and white that we're on the right side. And with so much of this, it's not – you can't do that. Um, you have to really know yourself and you have to know your own values and know enough about the situation. So that's been a really interesting thing for us too. Like a lot yeah. of what we do is actually just tell people like, ooh, there's no right and wrong and here's some – tools yeah. on how to navigate that it's really hard for people it's super but, I, but I go back to i think it's 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 relationships yeah um, yeah and having those relationships is what gives you value to life but what also makes you more the big thing i'm talking about is resiliency mm-hmm. um it's not getting through this one but how you gonna be more resilient we have big choices to make and the clothes that we wear are a part of that choice and just think about you know, clothes is investment and the people that make those clothes. And I think if you'll start having a deeper thought about that, it will ultimately make the world a better place. And I'm, I'm not, again, uh, my Patagonia jacket. Um, and that's one thing I beat Patagonia up on a lot is they don't make anything in this country. And they've got some great standards that are B Corp. I support all that. But I think they're missing a very, very important part of the conversation by not making it here. Because I believe when you do go outside of your community to make something your community make, then you're you're cheating the system. 
Uh, but Patagonia is better than most companies. So this is a product that I don't make. So I'll sort of just, just, just have a better relationship with clothes. And, um, the main thing is understand who made your clothes and how important it's just like, understand where your food comes from, understand where your clothes come from. I would say, you know, people care about the food, care about the clothes and, um, just start that journey. And I think ultimately you'll make the world a better place. The work that you do and the interest you, and again, I appreciate you, you contact me. It's we're all in this together. Yeah. The more people we can connect and talk, we build a better planet for everyone, not just trying to enrich ourselves. Uh, and again, as we said with the peril industry, some it's amazing. Some of the most expensive brands out there that people pay for typically have the the worst and ugliest. Uh, supply chains yeah. because they're focused on how do I make more money yeah. for myself? So I had to squeeze this out of the supply chain and we just want to be just the opposite of that. And we probably want everybody most to have a seat at the table. Yes. Those big brands you're talking about, their money from my experience will go into the marketing to try to yep. convince you that what you're getting is this awesome thing. And yeah. people who are actually doing it right, most likely don't have tons of extra resources to pour into this illusion, as you were saying before. So... I mean, that's a, our biggest competition is not another company. Alchemy Van World, our biggest competition is price. Mm-hmm. Because right off the bat, when I say domestic manufacturing, I'm talking about paying people this whole supply chain. That supply chain, their dirty shirt probably impacts five or 600 jobs. Those people are making anywhere from 13 minimum to 18 minimum on the low level up. Mm-hmm. And we're competing in a marketplace that pretty much is done overseas in a living wage, say in Vietnam, maybe, maybe $2 an hour, mm-hmm. probably closer to a dollar. So, I mean, the difference is you might say so what the problem we've had too, is that the brands that, you know, have become addicted to the profit margins. And there's been this, you know, even with COVID there's interest in reshoring the, the bigger brands are so addicted to that um, economies of scale of making overseas and, you know, they're publicly traded companies. They got to make return for next quarter. They can't make the pivot. And that's another thing I, I, I tell a lot of these young folks. I said, really, the brands of the future are probably not the brands we see today because really, really those brands need to go away. Mm-hmm. They're too big to change. I, I'm more excited about the up and coming brands that have this triple bottom line value than the the big brands that try to do well we'll do this one little bitty thing yeah and market the hell out of it that yeah. we did made in usa product where 99 percent of stuff's made overseas yeah well eric i wish we could do this every month yeah this is great <laughs> so well, thank you so much for reaching out to me thank you so yes. much you get some some shirts on your website yeah We hope you enjoyed this episode with Eric Henry, and we hope you'll take a chance to check out his website, Solid State Clothing. Thanks so much for listening in. Hope this gives you some insight into your own closet and your own consumer choices and how you would like to see things moving forward for the world and for people. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Good Dirt Podcast. If you are not already following us, Lady Farmer, at uh, on Instagram or in our newsletter, you can follow us at We Are Lady Farmer. And if you sign up for our newsletter at ladyfarmer.com, you will get monthly updates and news as to everything that's going on in our world. We'll see you next time on the Good Dirt. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. <laughs>